Good morning again. It's so privileged, such a great privilege, of course, to be here as always with you. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. After a long, long journey, we are finally at the end of this part of our journey as we conclude Hebrews this morning uh, with this uh, benediction. And so don't go anywhere when I read this. I know you'll hear this and you'll want to get up and go because we're at the end of the benediction. That's what we do at the end of the service. But this morning, we're going to do it both at the beginning of the service and unpack that benediction in the end of the service. So let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by His Spirit, Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 25. For the writer says, Now may the God of peace... Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if he comes soon. Greet all the leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for its Christ-centeredness. Because, Lord, we need Jesus in these troubling times and in every era. Because every era is filled with troubling times. We need Jesus. We need Jesus today and tomorrow. We needed him yesterday. We need him for now and forever, God. So, Lord, I pray that, we, I pray that you would take this entire book we preached over all these weeks and that you'd bind it to our hearts, and that you'd make us more like Jesus, that you'd draw us closer to Jesus, that we would be people of Christ, Christians in every way. And that when people see us, they would say, there goes a Christian, indeed. God, we know we can only do this by your grace, as, we, as this text tells us. So God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see great things from your word. Even in this benediction, God, these parts of Scripture we tend to just gloss over. I pray we see the richness that you have given in us in your word. We might be made more like Christ. And we pray this in the strong and the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Well, 17 months ago, thereabouts, we began in this book. And you know what's happened over the last 17 months or so? We've gone through a little bit of a what some have called a pandemic. And so we've needed... Something, I think, to make us strong. And hopefully Hebrews has been just what we needed. Now, we planned Hebrews long before anyone had ever heard of coronavirus or COVID-19 or all that stuff that I tend not to even use again. I want to spit when I say that because, like you, I'm very tired of hearing about it and tired of talking about it. So we won't talk about it anymore. But we began in this book because we need Christ. And it was perfect in God's good providence that we had this book to stabilize us and to strengthen us and to put, to put steel on our backbones as we faced many dangers and toils and snares over these months. And of course, it's not over, is it? And I, by that, I don't mean the pandemic. Tomorrow, we'll face many dangers and toils and snares. 
The next day we'll face more. And once this crisis is passed, there will be another crisis. But in our lives, personally, but also corporately, in this body, in this land, in our fallen world. And we need Jesus. It's just that simple, isn't it? And we've learned a lot about Jesus. We've learned here that Jesus is a better high priest. All through the book of Hebrews, the high priest promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, he's the final, the great high priest. He is a better prophet. He's a better king who's redeemed us through a new covenant which has been enacted on better and more certain promises because it has God as its surety. We've learned that. God is the guarantor of this covenant. We've learned that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Hopefully we knew that, but we've been reminded of the importance of the incarnation of Christ. We've learned that Jesus, as the Son of God, reveals to us God the Father, that He is the agent of creation and sustains all creation. He's sustaining us right now, this very moment. Jesus. He's superior to angels. He's superior to the Mosaic covenant. The covenant He's brought in is superior to the the covenant of works. The covenant of grace is superior to the covenant of works. Superior to the earthly tabernacle and its priesthood. We've learned that faith is necessary to please God and what that looks like. And that faith sees the invisible kingdom of God as more real than the visible kingdom of man. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 11, didn't we? Through the lives and the, the mini biographies of these people. These saints of God whom God gave persevering faith. Because that's what we're here and what we're after. We've learned that the last days began with the coming of Jesus. And that perseverance is necessary for the Christian life, that we must run the race that has been set before us all the way to the end. That there's a race, it's run by grace, yes, but it's also run by faith. And we must run it all the way to the end. And that has been our end game here. So we've come to the benediction. What does benediction mean? We know we do it. We do it every week, right? Now comes the benediction and we get up and we go home. That's when we start talking, right? Or we go to the chicken or whatever it is we're doing after church. I think we need to spend more time meditating on the Bible, don't we? Uh, and saying, okay, that's over. Let's turn and talk about you know, the football game or whatever. But that's what we do. What does benediction mean? Well, it means good word. Not just a good word that, whew, that's over with now. <laughs> but we've just heard a good word. That's what the benediction is, good word. All the New Testament letters include some sort of benediction at the end. It's usually a prayer to God on behalf of the readers. And the prayer is especially clear here today, and that's why I'm calling this How to Pray for Persevering Grace. This is kind of a, I think, of a bit of a guide to how we are to pray for ourselves. As the writer here prays for the audience he's written this sermonic letter to, so we need to be praying for us. This should inform our prayers. The theology of this beautiful passage should inform our prayers, and we're going to see how. Now, the writer of Hebrews just asked the congregation, the, he asked his readers, pray for me. He said, pray for him. And now he's saying, here's how I'm going to pray for you. And he prays for them here, right? He says, now may the God of peace, this is the prayer, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And on he goes. He is praying for them. Praying for them so that they might persevere. Because Hebrews is a word of exhortation. The congregation would stand firm in the faith and live in a manner pleasing to God. And it is grounded in one prominent theme, Jesus Christ. We are Christians after all, right? Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, and forever. Christ. Notice this. 
The writer certainly has hopes for how the readers will respond and for how they will live their lives in the midst of affliction and temptation. And of course, we're concerned about that here at Christ Fellowship Church as well with you and with ourselves. That's why we're here every Sunday in part. But he appeals to them not so much to go and do this, but he appeals to what? He appeals to God. Look how he starts. Now may the God of peace. He's not saying, okay, since all this is true, now you need to go. He says, no, now may the God of peace. May God do this. To me, that's very telling. Sometimes we want, to make, you know, we want to find ourselves in the Bible, and there's a valid place for that. We're found in Genesis 3. But we want to make ourselves the hero of the Bible, but the Bible is a very God-centered book. He says, now may the God of peace, may he do something for us. And that's what we need. We need in this day and age and in every day and age, we need God to do something for us. He's done something for us. We need him to continue to do something for us if we are to persevere to the end. Now may the God of peace. I mean, God commands us to obey him. He commands us to bear fruit for holiness, the fruit of holiness in our lives. But here's the deal. We lack the power to obey him. This is why he says, may the God of peace. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to save ourselves or to obey him in sanctification. That's why he starts with God. That's why it's always God, right? It's always about Jesus. It's always about his grace and always about his mercy. He appeals to God to give his people the ability to do his will. This reminds me, makes me think of St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the great fathers of the Christian church. Very famous testimony of how he was saved. He was a man who's kind of like the, the writer of Ecclesiastes. He tried a little bit of everything. He tried wine, women, and song, the whole bit. Found it lacking. His mother, Monica, prayed for him, chased him all over North Africa like a good mother will, praying for him, praying for him, praying for him. And at last, God gets a hold of him in a garden of Milan in the year 386. He finally, at the end of his rope, he hears some children singing, take up and read, take up and read. And he cries out to God and says... Give what you command and do what you will. There's all these commands he's saying, and I can't do them. You give what you command and then do what you will. You'll do, I'll do what you will. In other words, I, you have to give me what you command. And that's true of you. If you are to persevere to the end, if you're to walk through many dangers and toils and snares in this world to get to the world to come, you need God's grace every single day. And you must pray for it. You must seek it. Well, I thought you said God's sovereign. I thought you said God did this. We're going to see how. Okay? So Augustine knew it. This short but theologically packed benediction teaches us how to pray for persevering grace. Let's, look at, let's just look at the phrase by phrase here. One, he prays to the God of peace in verse 20. He says, now may the God of peace. He just say, now God or Father, he calls him the God of peace. Why? Well, I think we, if we know something of the background of this book, we know why he's praying this. They were a persecuted people. And now we may not be persecuted, but we may be in the future. It might be good for us if we were, actually. I think we would know who means business about God and their commitment to Christ, and who doesn't, who's just playing church, wouldn't we? But they're being persecuted for their faith. These Roman leaders are at war with the Christians because of their faith. And so the, remind, the, God, the writer reminds them, we serve a God of peace. Now, they're at war with the Christians, but we serve a God of peace. A Savior who brings peace. 
Jesus and one of my, probably my favorite verses when I'm in the middle of affliction is John 16, 33, where Jesus said, I have said these things to you, why? All those things that come before in John, the first 15 chapters of John, I have said these things to you so that you may have peace. Many of you come here this morning, you don't have peace in your hearts. There's some kind of conflict in your lives that may be sin in your heart, may not be. It may just be you, you don't know where the rent's going to come from or the groceries are going to come from or you have a relationship that's broken or your wife has cancer or your parents are dying or who knows, 10,000 things besides. You don't have peace. But Jesus says, I've said these things so that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. You, you believe that? Is there tribulation out here? I don't mean the great tribulation. We can talk about that later. Is there suffering in the world? Is this country, are we at peace in this country with each other? I could mention two or three words and you guys would be at war with each other, wouldn't you? We're not going to do that. (laughs) We're not at peace, are we? But Jesus said, in me, I've told you these things so that you might have peace. But in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. Or as the old King James put it, I memorized it back when I was like six years old. Be of good cheer. I love that. For I've overcome the world. You have a Savior if you're in Christ. That's your identity. You have a Savior who's overcome the world. Yes, you're going to have tribulation. Yes, you're going to suffer. No one, they may not love you. The world won't love you unless you're of the world. It won't love you. That's a promise. But Jesus said, take heart, beloved. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Jesus is God. He prays to the God of peace because we need peace, don't we? I know I need peace. I can lay awake at night and fret over all kinds of things. And you can too. But in Jesus, we have peace. Believers to whom Hebrews was written, they were suffering terribly under this violent lash of Roman persecution. The Emperor Nero, a famous, infamous emperor, hated Christians. In fact, he set fire to Roman so to blame the Christians, said they did it. And he hated them because they wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't worship this great pantheon of Roman gods. Does that sound familiar? We're not going to worship the gods if we're in Christ. There's the gods of this country. Right? We're not going to worship the gods of this country. There are many gods out there, right? We, we see them. They just And we have them now. They just, they're different names. I mean, every age has. We say, well, you know, critical race theory is the greatest challenge we've ever faced. Well, well there's something before that and before that. Before that. There'll be something after that, right? It's always something. Why? Because Satan hates you and he hates God's word. He's always going to be fomenting rebellion against the church among God's people. He's always going to be after you. He wants to have you, have you and sift you as wheat just like he did Peter, just like Nero did. He was just an agent of the devil, wasn't he? Nero and all the, all the, uh, all the, the corrupt leaders throughout the history of the world that we have now and in the world history past have just been the agents of Satan doing his work, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Our enemy is not maybe a president you don't like or a governor you don't like or a senator you don't like or a world leader you don't like. It's really Satan. Who, If he's doing corrupt things, it's Satan. If they're doing corrupt things, they're coming against the church. It's Satan because he hates the church. We should not be surprised. What Nero did 2,000 years ago will be done until Jesus comes back by dictators and corrupt leaders. And there are new ones will arise. We'll think we got it made. Okay, if we could just pass this law, Christians have it made. That's never going to happen. Let's stop thinking that. He wanted to arrest Christians, though Nero did. These Christians had not yet experienced martyrdom, according to chapter 12, verse 4, but they were in danger 
from their own hearts. They were in danger of falling back, of backsliding away from the gospel, not to lose their salvation so much, but go back to Judaism where it was much easier, where they could be left alone and not be seen as Christians. And, you know, it's much easier to be involved in Judaism, to adhere to Judaism because that's not being persecuted, they would say. And of course, they would so prove they were not ever Christians at all. And that's the threat in every year. That's the threat. That's why you need the church. That's why you need the word. That's why you need prayer every day because that's where Satan wants to have you. And that's in part why we're here as a church for your perseverance. That's why the book of Hebrews is here. It's a means of your perseverance so that you will continue on in the faith that you won't slide back away from God, away from Christ to be lost forever. You need peace, don't you? We need peace in our hearts. That's why he's praying for it. Think about the last 18 months or so. Boy, it's been tumultuous in this country, hasn't it? We need peace. But you can have peace right in the middle of the turmoil if you have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, well, no wonder. No wonder you're scared to death probably. If you don't have Jesus, I'd be scared to death. I don't know how much I'd even want to live if I didn't have Christ. But you have the Bible to explain why things are the way they are because of human depravity in the human heart, sin and death. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, he said. It's this very Savior we've been unpacking for the last 65 weeks or whatever. It's been a long time, hasn't it? But we needed it. Why does that church down there do that? Well, we need it. We need God's Word. We could do a lot of other things, couldn't we? But we don't need those things. We need God's Word. Because we need peace. We need the God of peace, and we find Him here. Because we have an ever-active enemy, Satan, who is far fiercer than Nero or Hitler or Paul Potter, any, any dictator who's ever lived who's hated and killed millions of people. He's far fiercer and far more intelligent. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses. No, he's not omniscient, but he wants you. He's powerful. He's far more threatening than Rome. He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy us. I mean, we talk about things all the time in the church now about CRT and Christian nationalism and all these different things on different sides. Satan is far more powerful, has more, far more power to draw you away from Christ than does any of that. And that's how we preach Christ who is the, who slayed Satan at Calvary, right? We could talk about a lot of these things and spend a lot of energy on it, but we really just need Jesus. We're going to overcome whatever it is you wrestle with. Whatever seeks to draw you away, Satan is behind it. So he prays to the God of peace, you need peace in your heart. Secondly, he prays to God who brought from, up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant. We could spend weeks on that, on that one phrase. There have been volumes written. Just look at the Puritans. They've written volumes and volumes. John Owen alone has written volumes and volumes and volumes on that statement. Everything that's in there. Who brought up the, from the dead our Lord Jesus. The resurrection of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, he's our good shepherd by the blood of the everlasting covenant. He shed his blood as a surety for the everlasting covenant. We're, going to, we're not going to spend volumes and volumes because we don't have time for that today, but let's look at this. He starts with the resurrection of Jesus to describe Jesus, right? The God who brought him up from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God did. Of course, the Spirit was active and the whole Trinity had a role in that, Right? We know, but here he focuses on God the Father who raised him from the dead. Why does he focus on that? Because in so raising him, the Father said, I accept his sacrifice. I am vindicating the Son. His death wasn't just gratuitous for no good reason. His death paid it all. We love to sing in this church, and I love this hymn. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
That's what he means. That's why he said, I raised him and I vindicated his sacrifice by bringing him out of the ground. And in that, in that resurrection, he defeated sin, but he defeated death. He defeated sin at Calvary and death in the resurrection. So when you come to the end of your life, you can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's why I accept, expect to see my mother and my father in heaven because they made this profession of faith. And you expect to see many, uh, many, many friends and loved ones who have gone on before you. Because they will be raised from the dead, and so will you. This Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. This is the only time in Hebrews, surprisingly, where the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned. All this Jesus talking, no resurrection was right there. It's so important, isn't it? We can't deny the resurrection and expect to be considered Christians on any level. Either we, either we serve the resurrected Christ or some other Christ. There's only one Christ, and God raised him from the dead. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Which means he leads you and protects you as a sheep. He's a great shepherd and you're the sheep and he leads you and he protects you like a good shepherd. I love Psalm 73. I've read this, quoted this to myself many, many times when there's affliction in my life or doubt or anxiety or fear. When I'm overcome by fear, I think the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restored my soul and leads me to paths of righteousness. On his name's sake, and my favorite phrase is this. At the end, I'm going to skip. Yea, old King James again. Here we go. Yea, even though, okay, if you don't know what yea means, it doesn't mean yahoo. It means yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I, feel, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In fact, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The enemy wants to have me, but you set a banquet table in front of them. This, she this shepherd has done that. He's led you to those green pastures. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You need not fear any evil. Not anything in this country, not anything in this world, nothing. Because you have peace in your heart through this great shepherd of the sheep. John 10, I love John 10. That, that chapter has meant more to me than a lot of other chapters of the Bible. It changed my life when I began to understand that chapter. My sheep know me, he says. My sheep, that's you. They know me and they hear my voice. How do they hear it? Through the preaching of the Word, through the reading of the Word, through the Word. They hear my voice. How do I know you're God's people? Because the Word of God resonates with you. If you don't like the Word of God and it doesn't resonate with you, then you might not be one of God's sheep. I pastored people who, they hated the Word of God, and therefore I knew they were not believers. They recoiled in horror against the Word and said, why don't you give us something else? Don't preach that. You can preach something else. Let's have fun here. Let's tell a few jokes. I can be funny, but I'm not a comedian, and that's not what you need anyway, is it? No, no, no. They hear my voice. You need to hear his voice, and he says, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and no one snatches them out of my hands. That's it. That's the security you have. This great shepherd, this great sheep, I mean, this great shepherd of which you're the sheep, he's got this. He is keeping you by his grace. And you may walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, but he will be with you every step of the way. I've been through a good bit of turmoil in my life, not as much as some of you probably, but enough, <laughs> enough to keep me busy. But there's never been one second, not one second when he wasn't with me, and I know that. I know that now. I can look back and I, I may have doubted that at the moment because I can, I'm prone to doubt like we all are. But now I look back in hindsight and retrospect and I see there was not one second when he wasn't there with me. And in that I can take peace 
no matter what happens on a given day, no matter what happens on Monday, I, can, I know he's with me. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He gives us life and no one can snatch us out of his hand, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands because he says, he goes on to say in John 10, I and the Father are one. Are you secure in him? Absolutely. You'd better believe it. Secure in him. By the blood of the everlasting covenant, he said, he, he goes on, he, he ups the ante a little bit. He's speaking of the new covenant here. Christ's bloody sacrifice at Calvary defeated sin and death once for all. Hebrews is a, blood, a book that is absolutely soaked in the blood of Jesus. The blood-soaked book. We can't get away from the blood of Jesus, can we? There's no escape from it. And that's a good thing. He was a spotless lamb who knew no sin, who was made sin on our behalf, so that he might offer himself as a spotless sacrifice for our sins. The just dying for the unjust, the guiltless taking the place of the guilty. You were guilty. I was guilty. But the guiltless Savior took my place and bore that guilt bore that shame that my sins, bore the wrath my sins deserved, bore the shame, the shame that my sin had accrued to me, he bore the shame. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. And if you're outside of Christ today and you're looking, look no further. What more do you want in a Redeemer? What more do you want in a Rescuer? What more do you want in a Savior? Great shepherd of the sheep who... By the blood of his everlasting covenant, redeemed us. The just dying for the unjust. He inaugurated the new and eternal covenant. He guaranteed that death was defeated. He would never die again, that we will not die eternally in this new covenant. Unlike the old covenant in the Old Testament, we've heard this throughout Hebrews. It's an eternal covenant. He can't break it. And that means his love for you. It doesn't just last until you sin and you mess up. It means his love for you is eternal. Right? It is eternal life. Eternal life. Guaranteed by covenant. The price of God's love for you bought you out of the slave market of sin and through his precious son, at the price of his precious son. Call what a covenant is. What is a covenant? Well, it's a binding agreement which provides the terms when two parties come together to form a relationship. Remember back in verse 10, the blood of bulls and goats can never do what? Can never take away sin. Never. In the Old Covenant, that's what you had. The blood of bulls and goats. It can't ever take away sin. Well, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, by His sacrifice, has dealt with sin once and for all. Think about that really strange event in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. Abraham went to sleep, had this dream, and God came down. He, had the, he, he, he made this sacrifice of these, of these animals, these birds, and he pulled them apart, torn them apart, and laid them in line. And God came down in a, in, in a flame of fire and a smoking pot and passed between the parts. You say, that's really strange. I heard someone say, boy, I just don't believe the Bible. That's a strange book. And we better, and I, I would agree with that. I, I believe it. <laughs> but it is strange, and we better never lose the strangeness. Because as soon as the culture thinks it's not strange, then we have a problem, right? But in that covenant, here's what God was saying. He was saying, in the day that I break the covenant, that this covenant I'm making with my people, Israel, is broken, then the one who breaks the covenant will be torn apart. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, I'm coming down and I'm making a good, and in the day that this covenant is broken, I will be torn apart. We broke the covenant. Israel broke the covenant immediately, like the next day. <laughs> they just sinned. And so would us. But he said, in the day that I break, that the covenant's broken, I will be torn apart. What happened to Calvary? 
Jesus was torn apart. The one who's fully God and fully man, as a man, torn apart. He's the surety of the covenant, right? The eternal covenant. He kept the terms of the covenant for us. And this is the covenant that points eternally in both directions. It's rooted in eternity past between God the Father and God the Son. They made this covenant of redemption and covenant past and said, we're going to do this. This wasn't plan B. This was plan A all along. It has significance in saving us in the present and reaches all the way into the future eternally so that you are saved eternally by covenant. And God has ratified the covenant by setting His Son, by paying the price, the price of His Son, and He was torn apart. He paid the price for your sins. Your sins demanded that you be torn apart. But Jesus was torn apart for you so you would not have to be. This is what He's done. This Savior, this Jesus, if you don't know Him, you're not giving your life to Him, what are you waiting for? Today's the day of salvation. He demands your life, your soul, your all. Give it to Him. Flee to Him in repentance and faith today. I mean, grounded, this is grounded in Christ's death on our behalf and His resurrection of the dead, the eternal Son sent by the Father, the God of peace. He now gets to what eternal covenant does in daily life for every believer. He said, okay, since this is true, then he tells us, he, he shows us how, to work the, how the work of Christ creates perseverance amid a tumultuous and fallen world, which we live every day. A world that beckons us at every moment to deny, just deny the Savior who bought you. Just deny him. Why do you live this way? Why don't you just walk in step with the culture? Let's just confirm LGBTQ. I just got it. All you have to do is say you confirm it, and it'll be peaceful for you. But, of course, we know it's not, right? But it's always the siren song, isn't it, that beckons you. Just, just compromise. No one will know. And so we praise that God will equip his people with everything good that they may do his will. Probably the most prevalent question I am asked as a pastor in counseling is, well, how do I know God's will? How do I know who to marry or where to go to college or uh, what job I should take or whether I should move to this city? I've been asked that a lot. And God's will is not hidden. It's not a shell game where God's got this will and he's sort of moving it here. You know, like you go to a baseball game and you have to get a hot dog if you tell which, you know, which helmet the baseball's under. That's not how God in the Bible, uh, how he shows us his will. His will is very clear. Oh, good. What is it? Well, I think John MacArthur, and I always go back to this because he summarizes it very well. Five things. It's God's will. You be saved, spirit-filled. And we've got some scripture here we'll put up. Uh, you can look this up later. It's God's will that you be sanctified. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You be made more and more like Jesus. It's God's will that you submit. What kind of submission? Well, all kinds. Parents and bosses and husbands and wives and, and husbands and to Christ, ultimately, to governing officials at times. That's God's will, ultimately to submit to Christ. And it's God's will that you suffer. In this world, there will be tribulation. It's God's will that you suffer, beloved, because we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, which is to say we are to suffer as Christians who are before following Jesus. We'll suffer for doing the right thing. You will suffer for neglect, for, for saying, I don't, conf I don't affirm LGBTQ. I think it's a sin. I think it's wrong. I think it's a deviant lifestyle. I used that term just a while back, and I got absolutely lit up for it. Deviant, because it is. It deviates from, and that's just one. I'm not picking on that sin, but there, you know, there's all kinds of things. Where we, where there, the siren songs of our culture now saying, just come on. You have to affirm this. Not to be canceled. If you're a Christian living a godly life in an ungodly world, you will suffer. 
And that's part of that's being a witness before a watching world. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. He goes on to say, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, there it is, according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we entrust ourselves to Christ, right? While, even while we suffer. We're saved, we're sanctified, we're spirit-filled, we're, 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 we're uh, submissive to Christ and the authorities have been put around us. That's His will. And we're suffering. Well, who do I marry? Well, if you, if you want to marry that person and they're godly, will you marry them? MacArthur said, then you'd kind of do what you want to do as long as you're seeking to live out in faithfulness to all those things. And I think that's right. But, but he's praying here that we would do God's will. We need to be praying that we would do God's will every day as well, don't, shouldn't we? He prays that God will work in us what is pleasing in His sight in verse 21. How do we please God? Well, it's very simple. If you love me, you will. And I ask you this almost every Sunday. If you love me, you will, Jesus said. You didn't say, I can't hear you. If you love me, you will. Beth the Lord, keep my commandments. Very simple. Love his word, delight in his word. That's what, how he works in us. And that's how we please him, right? That's how we need his word daily. How do we know his word? Well, I don't know. Well, we read it daily. Meditate on it. Commit it to memory. Make it your life. Well, I'm not a preacher. Well, it doesn't matter. You're a Christian. And that's how you know God and know yourself. That's how you know your needs, your true needs. And everything else, it'll fall into place. I'm not saying you have a perfect life, but your, God's will for your life, you, who to marry, who to go to college, where to go to seminary, and who to this, that, and the other, all that, God, God will add all these things to you. If you're doing all those other things, I'm not worried about who you're going to marry. Really and truly. It'll fall into place, you know? I get a tattoo or not? Well, that's all these things have fallen into place. I get asked these things. <laughs> Some of the young guys, I go back and forth about this. Having fun with each other. I get all kinds of things, but no, just do these things and, and do God's will. And there's freedom, isn't there? Some of these things. Sanctification is ultimately a work of God, but it's also a work that we do. How do we know we're saved? Well, we bear fruit. It's a work of God. It is, salvation is monergistic. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean it's entirely a work of God. God saves you. You do nothing to save yourself. Not one thing can you, one ounce of faith do you add to it. Faith, repentance and faith are entirely a gift of God. Unilateral, sovereign work of God. Sanctification, will you participate in that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for... It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Let me read that again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do something, right? You're not passive in this. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you are working out your salvation, if you're living, seeking to live a godly life, that is proof positive God is at work in you. So you're doing it and God is doing it. By His grace, He is sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus every single day. That is sanctification. He prays that God will work in us what is pleasing in His sight. And if you're a Christian, you will be sanctified. It's like all the, when I was a little boy, I was fascinated by the fact my dad would tell me that all the creeks, the creek that ran through our pasture would eventually flow into the ocean. I remember we threw my pacifier in there and my bottles, I was like, I was probably three, probably too old to have those things. We threw them in there. And my dad, I said, is this going to flow into the ocean? And my dad's like, it will. And I thought, some shark is going to eat my pacifier. <laughs> That's really cool. But the waters, they just do it, don't they? 
All the waters, they flow into the sea. They do it, right? That's how God's designed it. And it's the same as a Christian. You just can't help but be sanctified. You're doing it, but you want to do it. God has changed your heart. Are you sinlessly perfect? Of course not. That's not biblical. Do you backslide? Do you fall into, uh, into sin? Of course. You commit sin? Yes. Follow me around. You'll see that. But you're going to hate it. You're not going to like it anymore. You're not going to enjoy it, that's for sure. There was this time in my life, the most miserable three or four years of my life when, was when I was wandering far from the fold of God when I was younger. But I, I'm convinced I was a Christian, and I hated every minute of it. I was so miserable. And if you saw me and knew me, then you'd say, that guy's miserable. The Holy Spirit would not let me sleep and not let me, not let me go until I repented. For years and years and years, I was miserable. And I think I wore it on my face. But like a rib, those rivers flow into the sea. I, I had to be, it, it, to be a Christian is to be sanctified or be being sanctified. And I had to eventually do that or else I wasn't a Christian. The Spirit of God would not let me go. And so it is with you. But you work. You read the Word. You pray. You come to church. You do these things because those are means of grace God has given you. The ordinary means of grace, we, we call them, that do extraordinary works in transforming you. He prays that God will work in us what is pleasing in His sight. And He prays that God will do this through Jesus Christ and for His glory. Jesus is the ground. This is how it happens, right? Through His person and His work. He's the means of God's working in us what is pleasing in His sight. And only through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the blood of the eternal covenant, may we do God's will. And only through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are we able to do what is pleasing in His sight. We can't just turn over a new leaf like on New Year's Day or something. It'll never work. I tried that for years. Rededicated my life, I told you, 147 times. Not really, but I thought, I'll just do that and that'll make them throw the silver bullet and I'll be fine tomorrow. And I was just as miserable tomorrow as I was that night, usually at night. And usually after I'd done something I shouldn't do. Been somewhere I shouldn't go. That, that resonates with some of you. God is working in me all the while, in spite of my misguided rededications. Because Christ was in me the hope of glory, right? And why do we live? Why do we do this for, Christ, for God's glory? That's the chief end of man. Why did God make you for his own glory? He says, verse 21, He may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ whom belong. Glory forever and ever. Amen. You exist entirely for the glory of God. I think one of the things that changed my life about 24 years ago or so is when someone, when I encountered it the first time, and I think it was in the writings of Chuck Colson, one of his books, the question, what is the chief end of man? The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. I've never stopped thinking about that. I love the way John Piper puts it, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That's why you're here. And the writer of Hebrews knows this is how you're going to glorify Him is through living a life that honors Him. Glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. If you go home and you chew on that for a while, my prediction is you'll never stop chewing on that. 24 years later, I mean, I remember reading that and just, I had to put the book down. I used to pride myself being a fast reader. I put it down and just thought, wow. And I went on the internet. It was brand new at the time. Probably took me a long time. And I found it. And I thought, I've got this, this is good. That's why I'm here. That short little statement. God's used it massively in my life and in the lives of millions throughout the ages. In the 16th century. 
What do we learn about prayer as we wind down here? Just a few things here. And, and I'm reiterating kind of what I've already said. One, God equips you with everything good that you might do His will. And God works in us what is pleasing in His sight. But you must pray for it. Why? Because you're not good unless God makes you good. There was a political slogan the last few years, let's make America great again. To which I would argue we can't, America would never be great again until America is good again. And America can only be good as God makes the heart new, transforms the heart of sinful men and women. Only then would we be great because we'd be good. That's it. Revival. Pray for revival in this country. Pray for revival in your, your own life and in church because we must pray that God would work in us. Sovereignty and responsibility, they come here together. They meet right here in this text, as they do so often in Scripture, in this confluence of, of two great teachings of the Bible. I love what Rick Phillips said. He said, we have spent centuries trying to civilize man and the world. Over the past 100 to 200 years, humanity has seriously proposed a heaven on earth, either through education or social reform or political action. We have had the Enlightenment, democracy, communism, fascism, and now secular humanism. Yet look at the chaos of the world. We're going to get better if we just adopt this form of government. Chaos. Consider the confusion and torment, not just in the little tyrannies in some far-off corner of the globe, but at the center of civilization. Here in America and elsewhere where the gods of humanism most boldly stride, look at what's going on in our schools and shopping malls, look at TV and see what's coming out, and see what people are drawn to watch. And I would add internet, this commentary is a little bit older. Look closer into our families, apart from the grace of God, and see the futility of striving for real change by the power of man. For real blessings and peace and joy and fruit that is pleasing to God, apart from God's intervention, these things remain beyond our grasp in any true and meaningful sense. It is so easy to be demoralized, isn't it, by the decay we see around us. It's so easy to be discouraged right now. But we have a great hope. A hope that will never fade. We have hope. And it doesn't come by my or power, but by my spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah. It comes by the power of God transforming lives. That's what we need to be praying for, that you'll be transformed, and that the hearts of our leaders, the hearts of our, our, the people in this world, the hearts of abortion doctors and LGBTQ leaders, and, and all the rest, that they come to know Jesus Christ, and all those things, the political things, will take care of themselves. The Christian nationalists will look away from nationalism and come look to Jesus Christ as their Savior and not the laws of the land will never save us and some of us need to learn that lesson this is what we need this is our hope love the hymn we sing at Christmas love the line from this great hymn peace on earth and mercy mild what does he say next God and sinners reconciled hark the herald angels sing I love that that is one of my favorite lines in all of hymnody peace on earth the, peace, the God of peace and mercy mild that's come to us, God and sinners reconciled. That's what we need. That's what we need. And we'll spend our time and our energy on our knees praying for that. Praying for our own transformation and the transformation of others. Secondly, prayer, second thing we learn about prayer, prayer is an act of confessing our faith. Look at all the good doctrine in here. Learn sound doctrine from Scripture and pray the Bible back to God. 
Do you pray about the, the God of peace? Do you call him the God of peace? Do you pray about the blood of the eternal covenant? Include all these things in your prayers. Theology is a good thing, not just for seminary students. It's for every person. Because as R.C. Sproul put it so well, everyone's a theologian. It just The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Thirdly, prayer is grounded in Christ. We always come to God through the Father, through Jesus Christ. He prays what? By Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ here. He comes through Jesus. We come through Jesus, our great mediator and Lord. And finally, we learn about prayer that we glorify the Father when we glorify the Son. Great Puritan John Owen said, The Father communicates all his love to us through Christ, and we pour out our love to the Father only through Christ. Christ is the priest into whose hand we put all the offerings that we wish to give to the Father. I mean, the God, the Father's first and chiefest love is his Son, both as the delight of his own soul and also as the mediator who brings us to God who's praying for us right now this morning. It is the Father's greatest delight that we should worship the Son, and that's why we've gathered here. That's why I'm preaching this morning. The central act of Christian worship is what's happening right now, we believe. Salvation our worship are from Him and through Him and to Him. And so should all of our prayers be addressed through Him and to Him. This should transform our prayer life. Your prayer is dull. And so my prayer life is dull. I'm tired of my prayers. God's probably tired of hearing my prayers. Pray the Bible. Pray sound doctrine. Pray the way the writer here prays. Because this is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. And this should inform our prayers, right? This benediction in the entire book of Hebrews communicates to us one thing. We need to cling to Jesus. Early Christians to whom this sermonic letter was written. And I love it. He calls it my brief word of exhortation. Verse 22. It takes about an hour to read it. So the Bible's definition of brief. Well, it's an hour. Okay. So <laughs> you're saying, oh, I wish he hadn't said that. But they're seeing the world change right before their eyes. So were we. The only thing in this fallen world that always remains the same is that everything is always changing. Right? And just like us, their security, their peace, their prosperity in this world were falling away due to sin and death. And they were needing to do everything according to God's will and to please Him. That's the command of the Bible. Do that and do that. That's what He's commanding. In the midst of all this chaos, we to do that. And what's fitting that the letter closes after He gives, He talks about, you know, to Timothy and all these things. He says, grace be with you all. Because that's what we need. Grace upon Grace. It comes down to us daily through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And not to be demoralized by this, the rot that we see all around us. They needed God's grace to live to God's glory, to persevere all the way to the end of the race. And so do you. And so do I. Close Hebrews with this. You need Jesus every single day of your life. This Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, this Jesus, who shed his blood to ratify the eternal covenant and secure the salvation of sinners like you and like me forever. This Jesus, the Son of God, who by his grace will enable you to stand when the world, the flesh, and the devil all whisper in your ear, forsake him. Christian life, it's just too hard. This Jesus, who is the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king, 
when you've lost all your relationships in this world to death or abandonment or conflict, when you're out of money and you're out of hope in this world, in the things you can see, this Jesus, who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews has taught us that this Jesus is the only thing that can do helpless sinners good. Flee to him today. Flee to him and find mercy. Let's pray. God, this has been a wonderful study for me these last 60 some odd weeks. I'm grateful for Hebrews because it tells us about Christ. I pray that we would be Christ-entranced and Christ-saturated, Christ-centered, Christ-soaked, Christ, morning, afternoon, and evening in this church. Our hope would be in Him and Him alone. Oh God, revive us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ today. Give us grace to take gospel hope to a world that is absolutely hopeless without a Savior. Do this in us and through us for your glory. We might glorify you and enjoy you forever. Through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, who brings us peace. Amen.